Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Uh, today my guest is Mr. Jeff Astor, uh, and he is a former veteran, and, but just to let people know, the focus of this podcast is the primary focus is private security contractors, uh, but there's an awful lot of people out there that comprise the missions of the military and other government agencies that do what they're doing uh, around the globe, including here in the States, uh, that often requires people in industries and professions outside private security, which makes up a very small percentage of, of, of a lot of contracts. Um, but Mr. Jeff Asher is a former member of the United States Army, uh, law enforcement officer for a, a great period of time, and also a private contractor. Um, so without further ado, um, let me introduce to you Mr. Jeff Astor. Jeff, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, you're, my, my sincere pleasure. And for the folks that are listening, <laughs> you know, uh, I sometimes might laugh at inopportune times for various reasons, and veterans typically get it. But uh, we had a technical glitch. I'm not going to go into it. And I want to thank Mr. Astor for his patience and his understanding <laughs> Um, in, in this matter, so we won't go into that. But uh, uh, you know, the joys of podcasting or broadcasting or whatever it is. So, <laughs> uh, so with that said, uh, Mr. Astor, for the folks that are listening, uh, could you brief them on uh, your background, your history, uh, who you are, and, and the things you did prior to making that switch to becoming a contractor, and how that worked? Sure, no problem. Um, well, Scott, back in 1980, I uh, joined the U.S. Army Reserves, and uh, I was there for till 1990 for 10 years. And, and on the other side, on the civilian side, was also I, I just graduated from the Philadelphia Police Academy and uh, had gotten a, a patrolman's job with the local police department. So, so I ran parallel those two careers parallel uh, for, ten, for 10 years. Um, I was in patrol work, and then I was promoted to detective. And then um, in 1990. I was appointed to the, the Attorney General's office in, in their criminal law division, which has about, um, I think they had, at that time, they had eight enforcement bureaus, and, and two of those bureaus were organized crime and narcotics, and that's what I was assigned to go into, because I had developed a, uh, an undercover identity when I was still in local police, uh, was a uh, task force officer on loan to the DA's office, so that's where I got my narcotics background from in training, hmm. and uh, so it was kind of a nice, easy transition for me to the Attorney General's office, and that transition to the AG's office in Pennsylvania opened up a lot of opportunities because um, they... Um, they never had a SWAT team with, with the AG's office, and we created. I was fortunate enough to be selected to, to participate after, after a, um, a resume was given and, and a physical agility test. And then, but we were fortunate to be trained. Uh, they sent us all over the place. The U.S. Army Rangers came in to do a confidence course with us to get, us, uh, to get our confidence up, our confidence levels up. And then, and then we were trained, uh, we cross-trained with Philadelphia SWAT, we cross-trained with, with California, with L.A. SWAT. So hmm. a lot of good, experienced people came out to um, to help us get started. And, and, and I'm very proud to say I, I was with that, that unit for like nine, nine years while I was with the AG's office. And that was a subunit. So I still had my primary caseload that I had to maintain. But then the uh, Special Operations Group, which w what it was called, 
uh, when, when a job came up, they had it regionalized. So we had like 30 people in the east and 30 people in the west part of the state. And wherever the jobs were going, then we'd get, we'd get called out and, and go do it and then go back to our normal work. Wow. So uh, you were also – so U.S. Army, um, and I don't remember – I think you mentioned it, but you were uh, Army Reserves for 10 years. You were combat engineer in the Army. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Okay. Yep. So uh, – and those were kind of parallel, weren't they? Your, uh, the 10 years in the Army – Kind of parallel ten years with the with your police work is that correct? Yeah, almost to the month. Yes, I, I started. Uh, I went in the army, uh, came out uh, for basic training, um, finished up in May. Went in January, finished up in May with my MOS and everything, and then uh, and then then I was going to the police academy when I when I when I got out of the military uh, when I when I, I shouldn't say get out of the military when I was uh, in my MOS and going to the reserve unit. Um, and then I, we, those two careers ran parallel for, for about 10 years. And then I, I was honorably discharged in 1990 for the military and then maintained my, um, my military law enforcement career with the attorney general's office for the next, well, so it was like 31 years total. Wow. Okay. Uh, so real quick, uh, before we get into that police part of it, um, now you were, I think you said earlier you were in the army during, you started in 1980 and you, and you went out in 90. Um, and you had mentioned something about uh, President Reagan being president then, and the buildup and, and the warm fuzzy that the military started to get uh, when he yeah. made those pronouncements. I remember those days, um, but for me, it was too much, too little, too late, whatever. <laughs> I had a bad – because yeah. things were different back then, as you recall, at least in the early part of the 80s, because we were still, you know, uh, working out the kinks with uh, the, 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 the confusion and the bad feelings um, from the Vietnam War. Right, right. And uh, right. so some of us, like me, I mean, I, I just like, I need a break. I need to get out. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm just saying, anybody that remembers, uh, you know, anyway. So um, so now you were a SWAT member with, with the, in, uh, you said, Philadelphia Police Department. And uh, now, go ahead. Yeah, the, the Philadelphia Police Academy, they ran two different academies, uh, Scott. They ran one for their in, for their in-city officers, and then they ran a satellite academy for, which was a certified police training center for, uh, officers who were working outside the city of Philadelphia. So, okay. uh, what they would do, their instructors would come in, they'd work different shifts. Sometimes they would work for the city guys, and sometimes they would work for, for municipal guys, and then I went to their municipal academy. Okay. So, uh, uh, still the same, same trainers, same certificate, same uh, diploma at the end of it, but, but just, uh, I didn't, I did not work in the city of Philadelphia. Okay. But now you said the AG office. Now, is that a common thing? Is, is the SWAT teams, are they typically associated with the attorney general or is that just in Philadelphia? Well, no, the attorney general's office is a state agency. So, uh, they, the Pennsylvania state attorney general's office never had a SWAT team. Uh, in fact, it was it was an elected position. Um, I think I have that backwards. It was an appointed position, and when the when the uh, new attorney general was elected, uh, then uh, he started making changes. He really wanted to beef up his criminal law division and and make it a formidable law enforcement partner for local police departments to go to for assistance. That's really what the whole mission of the AG's office in the criminal law division was to bolster their numbers, get a lot of guys in there who had prior law enforcement 
So they already had that foundation and then take it and, and, and take their expertise and spread it out across the, the state of Pennsylvania so they could help small police departments. Cause there's, I think in, there's 67 counties in Pennsylvania alone. And then all, most of these counties have their own, you know, police departments in their small towns and cities. So there's a number of rural, uh, police departments, uh, that didn't have the money or the assets or the equipment or the training to do some of the things that they wanted to do. We would come in and run task forces for them and train them and then help them, you know, with monetarily with their budgets is also, also with their training and equipment. So it was kind of a partnership that we had with local law enforcement. Okay. Um, so now do you think, uh, looking back, um, and did you realize it at the time? Do you think that your military and police time for those 10 years, do you think one complemented the other? I think, I really think they worked in tandem. Uh, for, first, first the mindset that you get in the military, um, in its, in and itself is, is, is a bonus. And then you carry that over to law enforcement work. It, it really is. It, it, you get mindset skills that you build in, you know, whether you're, when you're especially working in recovery, you got to think on your feet. Um, when I first started working in recovery, we didn't carry a gun. So, hmm. you know, there were several times when, you know, you, you have to talk your way out of situations and, and, and having that military background, um, um, you know, being scared is, there's nothing wrong with being scared, but it's how you, it's how you, it's how you channel that that fear, and you turn that fear turns into awareness. And I learned that from the military, and I learned uh, I learned it as well as law enforcement. So they do work in tandem. Okay, yeah, and that that fear thing is, is a subject of discussion uh, that we won't dive into right now. But that comes up a lot, and, and that and you hit it pretty much right there on the head. Learning how to control that fear, channel it, is probably a better way of putting it. Um, yeah. Others would call it controlling it, whatever, uh, because you're right. There's nothing wrong with it, and I think most guys that have experienced it would say, uh, you know, they were probably scared a little bit, even after however many years of doing it. Uh, it just happens, there, you know. But it never really quite goes away. Uh, but you, you learn to control it, I guess. Uh, okay. So uh, in 1990, you get out of the army, and and you're still in law enforcement. Correct. Okay. And so. Uh, you were doing what until you decided to become a contractor for those, for the, I was, I was, for the next 20 years, I was with the AG's office and, and doing everything you know, from undercover narcotics as a task force coordinator. I trained at the academy for the for them as well. Uh, I also, uh, was an honest special operations group, which, 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 is, which was an honor for me to be with such a good group of people, great group, great group of people, learned a lot. And it gave us an opportunity to, to do some, do some real good training, real good physical training, as well as mental training. Mental mental skills are as, as important as physical, as you know. So uh, those those mindset building skills were were, were drilled into us there. So uh, I, it was just a great opportunity to work with a lot of good people, even in local law enforcement agencies. Um, you know, you people may refer to them as country pumpkins or whatever, but I found a lot of talented people in these small departments, uh, and I learned a lot from them. You know, hmm. and it was. Uh, so we we trained we traded ideas and we 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 trained and counter trained and and helped each other out and and it was really a true partnership and that's that's where that's where it works. I mean you 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 can't become an island in law enforcement and you can't become an island in the military. You have to be open for new ideas. You have to be open to help other people and don't get jealous of this pity jealousy crap of you know I'm better than he is or 
or our department's got the best arrest. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I never used to care who used to sign the criminal complaints. As long as the, as long as the job got done and, and, and everybody went home safe at the end of the day. Hmm. That's a great way to look at it. Um, you know, because so many guys, I'm sure you've come across your, your share of them. And I say guys, but, you know, other people sure. in general, uh, so many people want, want the credit. They want, they want the limelight. And um, some of us, you know, we, we grow up not craving that. And the rest of us or some others of us learn it's like, you know what, who cares? <laughs> exactly, exactly what you just said. As long as it gets done and whoever gets the credit gets the credit, great, whatever, because, you know, it could not have happened if it wasn't a team effort. And teamwork no, no. is key to all of this because so many people, um, you know, we, we talked about it earlier, that, that, that pointy end of the spear, the people that get the limelight, uh, but it took a team for them to accomplish that task or that mission. And that team is often 10 to 20 people in addition for every one of those people. So uh, absolutely. Even Scott, before the team, even before the team gets to their location, where they're, where where they're training, I mean, someone has to build that place. Someone has to put the, turn the lights on to get the plumbing running. And, and, and and all these are contractors and and they, they take their expertise, whether they're driving a dump truck in the United States and then driving a dump, driving a dump truck over in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever it is, they're all important to the mission. And, 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 and I have to say that, you know, you know, of course, you and I are kind of likewise, we're patriots, but I also think that these, these guys and gals who did those other jobs that, that aren't talked about a lot are, are just as much patriots, if yes. not more. Yes. So yeah, they're very important. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, I think I hearkened on it at, at the opening of this, uh, that, you know, while this uh, podcast is the primary focus is on the private security side, uh, there's an awful lot of people out there who have uh, contributed to the cause, done the king's bidding, if you will, uh, at various levels, um, whether it was the truck drivers or the plumbers or the electricians, uh, the admin people in the various roles, uh, the intelligence guys. I mean, just translators. You go down the list, check the box. There's a lot of people that contribute um, to our health, our safety, our well-being, the mission itself. Um, just so many people. And and they have and and a lot of us have seen or experienced you know many of the same things, um, so but yeah it takes that team effort everybody pulling together and once you have once you realize that you're working with uh, for the most part a team of people that is like that where they just want to contribute for a successful mission that's when you get those man that's when you feel like wow this is. We got it right. This is awesome. Yeah. And, and you don't want to leave it. <laughs> no, no, they, 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 they set the foundation, man. And a quick example, uh, when we would transition from, from the field, come back into Kabul to our, to our compound there in Kabul, and, you know, we'd have to turn our sensitive items in. Of course, we're going into the country. So we turn our weapon systems in and our kits in and all the good stuff and everything's accounted for. Accountability is accountability, you know. And, uh, I could like if I had a problem with my with my M4, if the selector switch was loose or there was a problem with the stock or something. When I come back from leave, that thing was fixed, clean, ready to go, uh, and that that's what that's what this is all about. I mean, there's people behind the scenes doing that stuff. Yep. There's armorers out there that are doing that stuff, weapon specialists doing that stuff. So when I came back off off a of leave, you know, my weapon was squared away. I could go out, you know, requalify, and and I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to go. So it was comforting to know that you had that support. And, yes. um, 
uh, and, and I, I think that's where, uh, you know, some companies, I don't know, you know, so I've heard, uh, I work, I happen to work for the one company for DynCorp who supported their, supported their people well. And I thought we were supported well. And, and, uh, that made the mission much more palatable. Right. I've heard that a lot about DynCorp from, from people that have worked for DynCorp. There's an excellent company to work for, uh, great support. Um, and speaking of which, so now when you, so after the military and after the police, uh, is, so you got into contracting and your first contracting was with, uh, DynCorp and that was in 2010? Yes. Okay. Um, so can, can you tell it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Tell us that story when you got in contact with the recruiter that all worked out and, and, and yeah. how that all worked. Right. And, and when I was still going strong with the AG's office, I, uh, I, I heard about these missions going on over there and being narcotics, of course, I was real interested in, and, and Afghanistan was one of the largest suppliers of opium. So it seemed like, a, with my background, it seemed like a natural thing to try to go over. And, and it was, for me, it was like cutting the head off of the snake. Uh, so I put a nice letter together through like, through my chain of command at the AG's office. And then a couple of weeks went by and I got a nice letter back, uh, saying, you know, hey, we, we, we really think what you want to do is great mission. However, uh, you know, we have a mission here to do and we're, we're under man and you're not going anywhere, basically. That's what they told me. So, you know, <laughs> so, you know, it was a nice way they probably said, we're going to save you from yourself, Jeff. You're not going anywhere. You know? so, <laughs> So um, that being said, I, I kept in contact with the recruiter though, and uh, when when retirement was just around the corner, I recontacted with them again, uh, and I, I worked with the same recruiter. He was still there, and I said, "What do you got? Anything good going on?" And he's, you know, he, he he explained we got a real good mission coming up, and I think you'd be a good candidate for it. You know, send me another resume with with, with your training you've had since the last time that we we did all this. So I sent everything into him, you know, and you know. It seemed like months or almost years went by, but it really wasn't that long. I was as anxious. And uh, he reached out for me again through email. He said, you know, you're on a candidate list. Um, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, I had all the qualifications. So I thought, I'm like, I'm like a hot dog. I think I'm good to go here. I got to <laughs> you know? So when we go down for pre-deployment training to, from the, it was called the Crucible in, in, in Virginia, uh, was the name of the pre-deployment school that we went to. Um, there was about 60 or 70 people in the, in the initial class. And the initial class was for a mission called the ECM 308 program. And all that stood for was embedded police mentor, and there were going to be 308 candidates brought on for a mission around around uh, Afghanistan that were going to send uh, police mentors all over the place. So, um, and I'm thinking, well, I'm a shoe and I got everything, right? So we get down there and uh, – and they, they, they do psychologicals. A few people were cut from the class at that point, and they go. And then um, so that we ended up with like 30, 35 for the initial class. And I was I was humbled because the the uh, director of the class said, listen, there were over 6,000 applications for this job. Wow. And out of the 6,000, we, we, we we're in the process of picking the 308 that we, that we initially won, and you're the first class of 308. So I'm like, Man, I'm, I'm nothing special. There's a lot of people out there with great credentials. Uh, and for whatever reason, you know, I was blessed that day or whatever, I got the nod. So, wow. you know, and, and, 30, and 29 other people got the nod. So it was incredible what they were looking for. There was that many people out there with those kind of credentials 
Um, and I was truly, truly humbled to be selected for that mission. Oh, to be sure. Yeah, and, and the, you know, you hit on something just now that is uh, something that, that, that frequently gets overlooked or forgets to be, get brought up. But there's a lot, and, and you kind of, you know, highlighted it, a lot of people looking to get in on every job that's advertised, posted, or recruited for. And the people that get selected, um, maybe they don't realize it, but they should be pretty grateful because they probably <laughs> don't realize just how many people applied for that job. Yeah, it, 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 it was, I was, I was shocked when he told me how many people had initially put in. I'm like, what's that? He goes, oh my, you know, we, we were all looking around at each other like, holy mackerel. You know, I mean, it was, it was an incredible feeling, you know, and I right. think to begin that class and know where we were going to go in a few weeks where we would be, I think that was also, it, 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 it boosted our morale probably 500% because, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen to us and what we were going to be doing exactly. And, and then as the days went on, it was laid out, you know, this is what we're going to be doing. This is the mission. And, you know, there was physical training involved, you know, weapons qualifications, all that stuff was done you know, on CONUS before we were CONUS before we went O-CONUS. So um, it, it just kind of dialed in what we needed to know before we got over there. But, you know, it's, it's still, until you're there, you don't know. Right. You know, so. But, uh, and uh, before we move on, uh, CONUS, O-CONUS, that comes up a lot. And, you know, again, some people probably know what that is. Uh, but can you t uh, tell people, because still to this day, people that, that know me, it's like, what's CONUS? What's O-CONUS? Can you tell people that are listening? Yes. Uh, if you're CONUS, you're in the continental United States. And if you're O-CONUS, you're out of the continental United States. And that's, it's, it's real simple, um, real simple um, uh, terms that you use so you know where, where you're going to be. So. You're CONUS, you're in the continental United States, and then when you're out overseas and you're OCONUS. Right. Now, yeah, and, uh, you know, to define or refine that a little bit, uh, <clears throat> you know, some of us say, you know, uh, like uh, some of the Brits and some of the South Africans and, of course, Italians and some of the other people out there, uh, you know, because, you know, they have – I don't think they use that term. They just use overseas, so frequently I just say overseas. But yeah, the, but the right. term that we use as American contractors is OCONUS. Yeah. Um, so you, you'll, so for those that are listening, uh, if you hear people from other countries, other nationalities saying overseas, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, yeah. so, but we just call it CONUS O CONUS. So, okay. So I didn't want, go ahead. Yeah, and you brought, and you just brought up, you made me think of something. There, there's a lot of contractors that from other countries, from, from overseas that come and work at the host nation. So, yes. you know, we worked with, we worked with, you know, Indian Gurkhas. We worked with, uh, host nation nationals. We worked with, uh, uh, we worked, uh, my second deployment, we were with the, we were with the Germans, the German owned the battle space. So we, there was a, you know, there's a lot of contractors from, from all over the world make up this big family of contractors. Uh, so it's not just a United States thing. It's, it's, it's a coalition thing. You know? Right, and that's and and you and I have talked about uh, that. You know, it takes a team, and so when we say team, sometimes we're referring to the, the you know other countries around the world. I mean, we're talking a big family in terms of that right. team, um, and, and and we maintain um, as best we can, oftentimes those those contacts and connections that we've made because there is a special bond. Uh, that you uh, that you develop with people when when you're in certain settings like that. Um, yeah. So EPM three zero eight. Now is that <clears throat> was that referred to as the class number? 
Yeah, uh, that, that, the 308, the, the EPM was the mission itself, it was an embedded police mentor program, and 308 uh, was the the number of of uh, contractors in this particular mission with those qualifications that were going to be dispersed around uh, around Afghanistan, to, you know, in different provinces to to uh, train train the various uh, police entities of that host nation. Excellent. Okay, so and. Uh... So before we actually transition into, you know, you step off the plane and you're in Afghanistan, uh, so can you explain to people briefly uh, police, mentor, embedded, uh, what those three things are, especially the embedded and mentor, because um, people often look at me, even after I explain it as best I can, <laughs> what embedded and mentor really means. <laughs> uh, a lot of it has to do with the period of time that, that you were there. And this particular period of time, 2010 into 11, Operation During Freedom was was was, was pushing pushing forward, and uh, the Afghan government um, wanted their forces to be out on front, uh, showing that they're showing their their country people that they were their host nation citizens that they could do the job, you know, in tandem with the military as uh, militaries of several nations as a coalition. Hmm. So, um, as an invented mentor. Uh, which was very highly attractive to me because I'd been in the army, but I never was deployed uh, actually. So it was living with the army unit or the military unit, excuse me, that you were that you were embedded with. Uh, you're living with them, sleeping with them, eating with them. You become one part of that team. You become another member of the of the, of the platoon that you're working with, and uh, you're dressed like them. You're armed like them. Um, everything is the same, and, and the reason that is is because at that point. The different the different insurgent groups that we were that were active at, at that point, the Haqqani Network, the Taliban, uh, 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 Al Qaeda was also active in Afghanistan at that point. So we were targeted. The embedded mentors were targeted by the by the Taliban and these other groups because uh, there was a bounty on us because we were teaching the security forces both in the military as well as the, the national police forces that. You know, to do the right thing and and, and to and to try to uh, govern a nation and rule over a nation that is transitioning from 2,000 years of of uh, their of their culture into something under a, their new constitution of law that had to be followed and um, and, and they didn't want that. So mm. uh, one way they 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 thought that they could prevent that from happening is let's just let's just snipe them or kill them or blow them up or whatever we have to do. But we're going to send a message, you know, that they don't come over here. Right. So um, that that unfortunately that was uh, that was a period of time where those things did happen a lot, and uh, lost a few friends over there, uh, unfortunately. Um, but it's like um, it's just like being in the military. You know, you, a price had a price is paid uh, for freedom, and um, uh, the, the majority of the Afghan people are good, hardworking, just want to just want to just make their make their living and plow their fields and. And grow their pomegranates. They they don't want to be embroiled in in this civil war, right. and uh, so it was very satisfying for me to be over there doing what we were doing and, and seeing the results that we ultimately saw. Right, and that sounds maybe a little odd, or people raising eyebrows like, really? <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, mm -hmm. it really is, um, and, and you really can't describe it until you're there. And then when you come home and you're done, and you go, wow, uh, there is a great sense of satisfaction, especially when you. 
when you develop those bonds and relationships with people from, from what you call the host nation. And for those that are listening, the host nation is nothing more than the country in which you're participating. Uh, you know, we call them the host nation. Um, yeah. Another term is local. Uh, but yeah. uh, but yeah. I think the official name is host. So an embedded an embedded member, embedded team member, mentor. Uh, so embedded person is somebody who's basically you could, you do everything to make it appear outwardly that you're just an, that you're one of them. Uh, it, it's kind of like a form of covert. You're kind of blending in. It's a, a form of right. blend, blending in. Everything is done. And, and you probably learned a lot about their culture that helped you in your role as an embedded well, member, right? You know, yes. Uh, I'll tell you, before, you know, when I knew I was going to go on this mission, um, I got on the CIA website and I learned everything about Afghanistan that I could by reading what they had to offer. And then when I went to pre-deployment training, uh, again, we were introduced to their culture and, and what to do, what not to do, you know, how to say it, you know, uh, don't uh, – certain things you don't do and, you know, you don't reach your hand out. I mean, just a lot, we got a lot of information. And then, and then, uh, and I can tell you this with all honesty, uh, Scott, I think we got more information about that, those type of things with the culture and how to treat the people than even the military got, because they, hmm. they were having a difficult, some of the military units were having a little bit of difficulty um, because, you know, their mission is a little different from ours. And, and, uh, we had to be more um, blending with the local population, whether they be a shopkeeper or whether they be a police officer, you know, learning from a, learning, uh, learning to police each other and, and in a community, in a commuting policing situation and, and uh, where the military was there pretty more of a, more of a, of a security force and, um, you know, being engaged and engaging the enemy if and when it had to happen and, and and taking care of us. I mean, we you know we got taken care of very well by our military partners because we had a job to do, uh, and they let us do that job because they they didn't have the backgrounds that we had. Just like I didn't have a lot of background in the military, although I had some, uh, but I learned a lot even being on deployment with them with two different units uh, about where military uh, services come and how far it's come with different weapon systems and you know biometrics that are out there. So. It's, it, we all learn something uh, on both sides of the uh, both sides of the coin. Mm. Yeah, and that is, yeah, we did learn a lot. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. we, <laughs> and the longer you're over there, the more you learn. Uh, although so, some, um, so before I forget, uh, so it's not too out of sync. What what was it like for you as an otherwise civilian member? The, when you stepped off that plane and you hit the ground in Afghanistan, uh, you had mentioned it earlier offline. Um, what was it, what was that experience like when, when you stepped off the plane and, and, and you went through your, you know, here's where everything's at. And that first time when it hit you, when reality set in, what was, what, 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 can you walk people through that briefly? What was that like? Absolutely. Um, once we got through, you know, the, the Afghan customs, we got into our, we got to the compound, and then eventually, you know, after those briefings were over for a few days, we're sent out with our unit and, and picked up and brought back. Now, I was, at a, I was, I was not on a forward operating base. I was at a combat outpost, which is a much more rural and austere facility. And all these facilities, by the way, Scott, were were abandoned Russian units, uh, and and the Russians built a lot of concrete reinforced 
little small little uh, bases over there, which they operated in while they occupied Afghanistan. So all all those all that information was turned over to the coalition forces, by the way, by the USSR, and and all those locations were then were then given to us to use. So I was at a small uh, combat outpost, which was manned by three platoons of CAV scouts, Army CAV scouts, and then one MP unit out of Hawaii, which which I was officially assigned to those guys. Hmm. So uh, first day uh, there, get to know the guys, introduce myself, talk to them a little bit. They're sizing me up. I'm sizing them up. You know how that goes, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, we, we, I, we were dressed the same way. We had the same uniforms, and uh, we talked about the, the incidents that were, that were occurring over there at the time. And, and uh, we, I looked just like another soldier. And uh, so there, our first patrol, most of our – seven of our checkpoints, all seven – uh, there was only one that could be driven to all the other six. They were all dismounted patrols. So uh, on a dismounted patrol, my first dismounted patrol, we went out. Uh, our, our, our combat outpost was at the base of a mountain. The, the mountain was behind the, the outpost, and there was a, a small hill going down to a, to a dirt road, which was our – and there was a, an iron gate in the middle that was that the only thing really between the outside world and, and our outpost was that iron gate. So – we form up at the bottom. There's a, there's another another briefing held about what we were doing, and then we the, the gates open. The AMP take the lead. They take point, and then uh, and we follow behind. And there was an AMP contingent behind us bringing up the rear. And then uh, I walk out on the street, Scott, and and you know I'm looking around, and I'm I'm like it's it, it hit me like like a lead balloon, man. I'm like <laughs> I, I am in I am in the you know what. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and the biggest thing I remember, Scott, and I had no spit, dude. I couldn't. Huh. I, I was dry as a desert. I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't spit if I wanted to. I'm like, I am. I'm. I am. This is the real deal. Right. This is. I'm in a combat zone with a combat unit. What the hell am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm such. <laughs> And, you know, as quick as that emotion came over me, I focused back on what I was doing. But I'm telling you, man, it was, it was, uh, it was, um, man, it was a special feeling. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a politically correct way of putting it. <laughs> it was a special feeling, dude. And it was, it was, uh, it was uh, a realization that, that set in, but it didn't set in until that exact moment. And I'll never forget it. Right. I'll never forget. Right. No, you won't. And, uh, but you know, it's, uh, it is one of those things that, uh, I think you had mentioned earlier, um, I don't think in this conversation, but that's, uh, I, I think you referred to it as, um, uh, one of those, uh, geez, uh, totally escapes me. But anyway, so, but, so you're out there and, and, and you realize this is real now. And, and and at that point, your life and, and your experiences begin to change, and uh, you, you learn to. Uh, I think you referred to it as that fear factor, uh, right. and uh, you know I'll let you explain that a little bit. But um, you, you had mentioned something about it's okay to be scared, um, and, and, but I'll let you you take it from there. But you know something about being able to control or working with it, turning it. Yes. Yeah, it, it, that that 
that is a skill that you you know you 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 inherit over the years and you build on over the years. And I was fortunate uh, of doing a lot of undercover work, and 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 you, so you're face to face with your adversary every day doing something, and 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 you 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 study your adversary to make to try to get you know as much information about that person or group as you can, so you can fit in when that when that time comes. And I, I adapted the same principle when I went when I went over there to Afghanistan and and um and being with a good unit helped a lot but you know i was i was uh i was probably i would say scared but i but i also learned you know in my career before going over there that to channel that fear into something productive like it it, it heightens your sense your senses like my hearing was was seemed more acute my vision was more acute just everything around me uh was more like I just had, you know, if a door was open, I'm, I'm looking at that door as we're passing it. You know, it's just one of right. those things that you, you that you I took over with me, but never at that level. I mean, right. because when I'm on that street looking around, going, this is, you know, like I, let, I, I'm not, I don't know if I don't want to say it on on the air, but it was an, an oh blur moment. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so. It helped. It helped knowing right. having that having that uh, that conscious effort to channel that fear really helped me a lot out over there. And and then you know uh, by the grace of God and and good leadership, uh, I came out unscathed on both deployments. So nice. Now, did that surprise you? Because you you know you had spent ten years uh, back home in the army, and you'd spent uh, twenty years. Uh, in the police force, you know, doing the stuff you did, both SWAT units, narcotics, undercover, all that stuff. When you got to Afghanistan for your first tour and and, and you're out there, did, did that at some point surprise you? Were you surprised at your, your fear factor because you had all that experience under your belt? You thought you had it? Well, I you know, I, I tried to. I, when I was still home, I tried to prepare myself because I, you know, you're looking at pictures, we're watching movies, and we're reading books, and and but until until you set foot in that environment, no matter if you're Iraq, Afghanistan, North Africa, Mogadishu, whatever, it doesn't matter. When you set foot there as a contractor. Uh, you have to use everything you've learned prior to for that moment because it's it's a real moment that until you do it you have you have no idea what it feels like right. and and it, for me it was that moment of reality that um you know i i got to i got to keep everything together all my all my skill sets that i have built all these years I have now have to put every one of them into play, and and you know what, um, by good people who brought me up in law enforcement and the good people who brought me up in the military, I used all that, and 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 for me it it was like um, it was a it was it was it was a go it was it was huh. a go and, and it was it, I by the time I by the time I left there I felt that there was nothing that I couldn't accomplish. Right now. Uh, and you you did two years or three years over there? I did two. I did uh, I did from 2010 until 11 was my first tour, and then I came back to the states and I was teaching on a federal contract for entry techniques and uh, active shooter training for law enforcement on a contract, and then I had another opportunity to go back over from 2012 to 2013. Same mission, uh, different province. I was up in Conduz this time north, 
and uh, northern Afghanistan, and, and we have a we had a large AO up there. I mean, hmm. we went from Hindu City all the way up the main highway, which was one of the only blacktop roads in Afghanistan, actually, and um, it went all the way up to the Tajikistan border. Hmm. So now, now uh, for the people that are listening, earlier you had mentioned, uh, you know, working with the Afghan National Police and you and COP and, and a bunch of other stuff. Can you briefly go through the various entities that you worked with, mentored, trained, instructed, describe the differences and one thing or another? Yes. Um, the, my first deployment, I was specifically there to train uh, in our area of operation. There were seven checkpoints, and they were all manned by the, the ANP, or the Afghan National Police. Um, those are considered the baseline officers of, of the Afghan National Police Forces. And as you go up the chain, you have ANCOP, and that stands for Afghan National Civil Order Police. And they're more of a highway patrol where they, they're covering the major routes in and out of Afghanistan and, and a lot of, um, a lot of, um, a lot of outward on the frontier of Afghanistan. They're covering a large AO and they're better mm-hmm. equipped. They were better trained. Uh, when I see better trained, they were, uh, they were higher, they had a higher education level, uh, for those recruits than the AMP had. They're, mm. they're, 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 um, what they needed to have to, to become an ANCOP. And then you had ABP, which is the Afghan Border Patrol, pretty much self-explanatory. They were in charge of, uh, the borders into the other countries contiguous to Afghanistan. Um, and they played an important role in, um, interdiction unit, interdiction of, you know, uh, bomb making devices, um, Anhydrous ammonia, things like that, that they would look for, uh, IED components. You know, they were, they were constantly seizing, uh, bomb making material on the way through. So, um, but to give the audience a little bit of, of, of over, uh, overwatch, if you will, Afghanistan as, as it sits was always a very corrupt, uh, culture. And what I mean by that is they don't have much over there. So whatever they need to have, they had to take or, or buy or someone would steal it for them. It was, it's a very, it's a very, uh, corrupt, their government was very corrupt at, at the highest levels. And, um, that, that's a, that was a lot to overcome because we're training, we're training a, a people who basically haven't changed for 2000 years and you're trying to get them to act under a new constitution that they, that they voted to, to fall under. Um, with some type of a civilian police force that uh, was not trusted by the because of how they acted in the past, and we had to come in and change all that. We had mm-hmm. to change the persona of the local population, and we also had to change the persona of the police. That you 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 have to work with the community to be successful. You can't be working against the community and taking things and you know doing things um, that that you're not supposed to do. And that was. A lot of really just sitting for a few hours at a time and talking. Their attention span was about two hours. After that, they were pretty much lost. So, if I get a good two-hour training session, that was a good day. Hmm. And, and then we would then we would hump back to our hump back to the outpost. So um, that, that was, and then and then I had the opportunity to train each one of those Afghan national police forces when I was over there. So I did some ABP, I did ANCOP, and I did AMP. And it also helped with the um, selection of uh, possible Afghan commandos that they were being recruited to go to the special forces side to be trained in, in just the special forces of the Afghan National Army. So and that selection process was 
a special forces representative would come out to with us or meet us at one of the checkpoints and would ask us um, who I was working with, who has a lot of potential, if he was keeping their uniform squared away, if their boots were being cleaned, if they were what weapons were being, you know, maintained, because all that stuff we were responsible to check. Hmm. And um, if we identified one or two guys that we you know thought might might have what it takes, that we turn them over to them. Sometimes we never saw them again. But I think I saw one during transition back after commando. He came back to visit the checkpoint. I happened to be there at the time. It was a great, great, great moment because hmm. he, he was squared away. I'm telling me. Wow. So did you encounter, I'm assuming you did, but, you know, for, for this conversation, did you encounter resistance in your mission, what you were tasked with doing, and if so, by or from who? Uh, well, of course, you know, the insurgents were, were probably our, our biggest threat, and, and that is self-explanatory. They didn't want us there because uh, they wanted to rule the country, and, 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 and they, didn't want, they didn't want children to go to school, especially women. Hmm. They didn't want school. They were you know, blowing schools up, blowing dams up. A lot of things were going on uh, to try to, to, to set the, the, the country on a different path. And, and the only thing that we were stopping them was our coalition forces, uh, the ISAF, which I fell under ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force. So that was the United Nations. So we were there working under – the mission was actually sponsored by the Department of Defense and the Department of State. So those two entities hmm. uh, put this mission together. So we were, we were trying to be ambassadors for our country uh, in, in a military uniform, if that makes any sense. Right. And, um, and, and, and I think, you know, and, and, and our military guys, it didn't matter what branch, because they were all over there. They were all being ambassadors for the country. And, and, uh, and I think we still are today. You, you, we're ambassadors. You know, you, you show your best side. You try to do the best you can for, for, for your own country to show them that there is a better way. Um, if you open your mind up to this, you, you can be self-sufficient. Um, uh, but we had we had some hurdles we had to go over. Yeah. Oh, a lot. Uh, <laughs> uh, before we go down some of those roads, uh, was there? You mentioned uh, the various law enforcement units that are over there in Afghanistan uh, that you worked with and did your training and mentoring with. But was there coordination between those various Afghan law enforcement units? Yes, there was. There there was a lot of. Um, they would help each other out quite a bit, actually. And hmm. uh, just to give you an example. Like I said, the period of time that we were over there, Scott, the, the Afghan government mandated that um, the Afghan forces had to be out front of every operation that was being done. So as their mentor, um, I was the luckiest guy in the world because I got to see things and do things that I used to read about in Tom Clancy books, too. Hmm. So it was an opportunity for me to see, to watch an operation unfold um, for example, and I, I won't, for OPSEC, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I can tell you that, you know, I had an opportunity to go with my A&P guys on a capture and kill mission with, with, a, with, a specific, with a specific special response team. And I won't go into even who they were. But to be on site there and to watch this happen and unfold, because my responsibility was if the A&P did something wrong, I was to make an on-site correction. Hmm. So it was... It, for me, it was like the pinnacle of my my entire life. I got mm. to work with some great operators, and you know, if from the military and also from private security, who were top notch, tier one, um, you know, the best of the best. And I got to watch this unfold, just because, you know, I, I was doing my job at the time, and mm. it was it was an honor to be there with them. Right. I was going to just say, so that it must have been quite an honor and a privilege to be a part of that. 
it was it was it, I, I can't even put it into the words my my, my brother right. it was it was, it was, right. it was all. <laughs> I, I yeah I totally get that I I feel the same way and it's one of those things that's really hard to articulate but yeah it's um so many uh Excuse me. So now, uh, mentoring, I mean, that term gets used a lot here in the corporate world here in the States. Mentor, uh, because, you know, a lot of us were, you know, quote unquote, consultants, advisors, you know, instructors, mentors. Uh, from your perspective, and based on, and, and at least in part based on your experience as a mentor over there, can you tell people what, what, what mentoring actually meant in terms of what you did over there? Yes, you know, there's uh, there's there's a fine line between training and mentoring. You know, training you're 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 offering something to somebody, and you're either going to learn it or they're not. And I think when you're a mentor, you're taking your personal preferences and personal um, skills, and giving those skills to that person on a personal level. Like I, when, when I'm talking personal, dude, there were when I when I would go into when I got to know these A and P. Uh, officers that I would train and after they got past the point that I'm not the I'm not this asshole that I'm there to help them and I hope I didn't I'm sorry if I said that I should have said <laughs> but, but um you know even though in the back of my mind I had to keep the open mind that yeah they could turn on me at any time and I knew this and I and I worked under that because that's the way you had to work but at the same time I would give them a genuine smile. In the Afghan culture, they know when you're smiling with them or you're smiling at them. And it means a big difference to an Afghan man, especially. If you're laughing at him or making fun of him, it's going to be a bad day. Somehow it's going to be a bad day. Right. So if you can project your 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 uh your willingness to help them and 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 give what you have to them, uh they will give it back tenfold. And and in, in our particular unit, in our AO, um, and in my in my AO, where I worked with our seven checkpoints as well as our headquarters, we didn't have one green on blue attack hmm. in the in the year that I was there. Hmm. Um, now to the people listening, that may not mean a lot, but in 2010 and 2011, I can tell you that um, we were on uh, blackout more time than I like to talk about, you know, when we're calling home on Skype or something like that, because everything was shut down when a, when a soldier gets gets killed. Right. And uh, or, or when a mentor gets killed, um, you know, until the next kid, of course, is notified. So uh, we were very fortunate and, and I was fortunate to have a good a good solid leadership in, in, in the platoon that I was in and um and you know their way was the hard way. They didn't take the easy trail out. They didn't go between the break and the wall. Sometimes we went over the wall because we knew and it's it's pretty common sense when you get over there for a while that there's IEDs all over the place. So and they're gonna go uh, the path of least resistance. So we took another path. Hmm. And that's why I really truly believe that I I made it out without any problems because the leadership knew what they were doing. We followed the orders and we followed their direction and, and here I am. So, right. Well, well, you know, uh, you mentioned, uh, uh, the culture, you know, in terms of, uh, respect and, and we talked about that earlier, uh, I think it was offline and, uh, that whole cultural respect and just 
just decent respect for people in general uh because uh we talked about you know the touch of gray and white and, and the facial hair the contractors you know some most are allowed to do um but all those things may add up to making sometimes all the difference in the world between uh coming home all in one piece and not making it back or making life really difficult maybe even if not for you somebody else in the team or a different team somewhere else because you disrespected them. And, right. uh, you know, for whatever reason, because you have these, you know, biased misconceptions, you know, whatever the, whatever it is that's going on. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but they know, uh, because you, you talked about their lack of education, generally speaking, as a society, um, in a lot of regions around the world, that's not an uncommon thing, but they're still, that does, just because they're not, uh, for lack of a better term, just because they're uneducated or not as educated doesn't mean they're not privy or smart or or intelligent, and and they they do operate on an honor system, an honor code, and respect. And if you're a genuinely good person down deep in the core of your person, that tends to come out, and they recognize that. And if you treat them with respect, man, they will go out of the way to help you, and oftentimes that includes saving you. Um, right. and, and sometimes in ways that, that you wouldn't have thought of. Uh, and you had an interesting point, kind of an example, uh, of when it came to, uh, sniping, uh, that, that, uh, <laughs> that story, uh, uh, yeah. go, go ahead and, and tell people about that one. I mean, but that's a good example of what we're, you know, that was just a, a case of, of luck, but, but, and I'll tell you why, but, but go ahead and, and, and throw that one out there for the folks. Uh, I was one of, one of one of I wasn't in country very long, a couple of weeks, and I was at a, at a specific checkpoint, and there, there was a little, just a little wooden shack that we used to train in. And uh, after the training session, I came out, and as I was uh, sitting down on a five-gallon bucket, and as I did that, the the uh, un, unmistakable sound of a bullet whizzing over your head went right over my head and impacted behind me on the mountain behind me, and it was one shot. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I stood up and I'm like, man, if I would have stood up a couple of seconds ago, I would be, I, I would not be here talking to you, Scott. So that was, that's really what right. I came down, down to. So it really, for me, it, 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 it was real, obviously it was, it happened. And, and, but it was everything that we were trained for, like expect this to happen because they are actively sniping mentors because they didn't want them to be successful in their work. So the best way to keep them from coming over is scare the hell out of them. Right. So, uh, <laughs> and, and it probably did scare you, did it, a little bit? You know what? It did. I'm like, and I laughed about it because, you know, one of a, one of a person's, uh, uh, especially cops, uh, in a bad situation, they tend to make a joke about it or laugh about it. It kind of, it kind of um, makes it a little better for you right. mentally. Right. So, you know, that's exactly what I did, you know, and I go, oh, you know, and, and the, the leadership did what they had to do. The little birds come over and try to find out, you know, it came from one of the orchards, no big deal. But the bottom line is um, it set the tone for uh, what uh, what the mission meant, not only for us, but what, it, what the impact it was going to have on a country. Because if they were going to this this level to try to keep people from coming over to doing what we were doing, uh, first of all, we weren't going to let that uh, get in the way of what our mission was. But it sure set the tone of, you know, you got you got to be ready and you, and you just you just can't take anything for granted here. So. Right, right. So it was 
Now, was that your first uh, experience like that when you arrived? And you said that was in the first two weeks, right? Yeah, that was the first. That was the first encounter we had uh, that was uh, kinetic. Uh, <laughs> we had a, we had a few more during that deployment. And uh, a, a quick story: same checkpoint. I, I, absolutely, we were at the same checkpoint. This is maybe several months into the deployment, and uh, we were. You know, we never told you know, the A and P never even knew what where we were going. We we kind of update them as we would leave. So we were taking a specific trail um, over to a, to a place that we had been looking at, or they had been looking at for a possible a bomb bomb making uh, operation. So before we left the checkpoint, we're all ready. We're getting getting our guy all gears on and everything. And we're we're moving out, and then for some reason the checkpoint commander asked us to step back for a second, and he was talking to our commander. Uh, just just at that point, the trail that we were going to take that day, uh, there was a sheep herder, and he had a donkey, and the donkey was walking in front of him. Well, the donkey the donkey uh, set off an IED, and the donkey was blown mm. up. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, it was right outside the checkpoint. So we knew it wasn't meant for the donkey. It was meant for us. And uh, the, the funny thing is, I guess the funny thing is now the farmer who lost the donkey, we had to pay the farmer. For his donkey, because it was our fault that the donkey got blown up. Wow! So, so that's the way that the mindset of the of the people over there is. Well, we wouldn't have these problems if you guys weren't here. Right. So um, wow. you owe us the. I, I can't remember how much he was paid in U.S. dollars, but it was more than the donkey was worth, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, geez, uh, junk. The donkeys. The sheep or goats, whatever they were out there. Did you ever see any of them painted? Uh, you know, because some of the Afghan men would, would paint their beards various colors, and you'd see... Yeah, oh, red, yeah, yeah it'd be a different time of the a year. It would be for different cultural things, but yeah, they would paint their beards red sometimes, and um, uh, the way they would, you know, let's say if they wanted to, if they wanted to have a chicken for dinner, um... You know, there was a there was a ceremony about that. Like they'd have to slit the chicken's throat, and the chicken runs around for a little while and basically bleeds out, and then the chicken is okay to take, and then and then they would you know pluck it and cook it. But it's everything has a kind of a ceremony with it, you know, and, it, and it's um it's to bring good luck and good fortune, and and it, 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 it extends a helping or a friendly hand to to us because they would share their meals with us, they share their chai with us. Um, you know, it, it was uh, you had to be careful because. The sanitary conditions of some of these checkpoints were, uh, well, there was no sanitation. Let's put it that way. So, <laughs> so, so you had to be careful. You know, you, you, you either accepted it and took a chance on, you know, having a little issue later on in the evening or, right. or you politely said, you know, I'm not feeling well or I had just had some at the other place. So, you know, there was a way around it without offending anybody. Right. Know, that's, that's what we didn't want to do with offend. Them. So you so. kept your Imodium and Pepto-Bismol hidden. <laughs> oh, that's one thing I I had in in in, in the hooch uh, all the time. So. <laughs> oh man! So so the sniping and and all the other stuff you know we had talked about earlier. Um, you know the numbers of contractors that have been killed in that region, um, and not just all private security contractors. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I think I said the number was something you know best as I could get it right was somewhere in the neighborhood of five to six thousand contractors i uh, know whether that's to date you know maybe it's a little bit more now i don't know but um 
you know, and, and, and to put that number in perspective, and by no meaning degrading or demeaning the, the sacrifice that our military brethren have put in over there, uh, but in that same region, in the same time frame, that's roughly the same number of, of, of military members that have lost their lives over there. Uh, so, 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 so there's, so when we talk about the casualties of war and the blood and treasure that have been spilled over there, um, in what some people would call some of the longest wars, uh, America's ever been in, um, it, it the, the costs are probably, the numbers probably quite a bit higher than what most people are aware of and what most, um, sources are releasing, um, if they right. were to be honest about right. it. Um, so, so it, it's a dangerous profession, dangerous job, whatever you want to call it, going over there, doing what we're doing, doing what you did, um, especially because you're not you're not sitting on a base, minding your own business. You're getting out there, doing well, minding other people's business, <laughs> and right. they don't and they don't want you there, do they? Right. Yeah. It was, you know, and I think we talked about this even when we first hooked up on 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 the telephone, Scott. I I, I have to tell you. Uh, for the audience specifically, um, the money was good. No, you know that's that's something that you know you, you work 25 or 30 years at a, at a at a job and and where the money wasn't that good, and and yeah now you have an opportunity to make a little money. But moreover, uh, I really I really truly believe that this is a calling. Contracting is a calling, and it's also a, um, a, a very patriotic thing to do. I mean, I think that. All the contractors that I that I come, that I came in contact with in, in our mentorship or in security in the security realm, um, you know, most of them were prior military. Not all. Most were private military, or excuse me, were, were prior military. But they had that sense of duty, um, whether it was from their law enforcement background or, or their military background. That sense of duty, and you know, it's a privilege, you know, to to, to come back to the United States. You don't take we take it for granted what we have over here. And, uh, uh, I, I don't even, I don't complain about potholes in Pennsylvania too much anymore. Cause it's probably <laughs> not That's like Afghanistan, my brother, you know? And, uh, so, so it's, it is, uh, a lot of people say, you know, even the young military guys, oh, you're only over here to make the money. And I'd look at them and say, well, dude, you know, when you put in 30 years at a career, you come back and tell me what it's like, you know? And, I right. think, and, and then when they got to know me, and this is not just me, but when they got to know the other mentors who were, who were around the region, um, for the most part, they were, they, there was a lot of mutual respect between the contractors and the military guys. And that, that, that never came up again after a while. They, they saw that we wanted to be there. It wasn't like we didn't have to come over. This was this is our choice. Right. And and you know they 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 embraced it. Next thing you know, it was like uh, they're asking me, "Hey Jeff, how could I do this?" You know, I said, "Well, you know, um, when you're done your military career, uh, you if you get out early, whatever you decide to do, I mean, there's there's about a hundred different companies out there will hire you depending on what your skill level is and what you want to do. But the good thing, the best thing you got to remember." Is, don't 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 do anything stupid before that it happens because if if you do, that won't happen. Right. You know because you, your record has to be stellar. Right. And, and they don't want to send over people who are not going to be good ambassadors for the United States of America. Period. Right. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you probably just hit upon uh, another topic that's, that's uh, worthy of discussion that it's an important one, too, that, that in, you know, to some extent does kind of come up a little bit kind of on the periphery. But it, it's yeah. that, uh, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, when we were talking about respect, that touch of gray or white in your hair, you know, that that, that uh, in certain cultures around the world, and it's not just in the Middle East region, but it, it, it seems to be a little bit more pronounced there. Uh, because you're an elder, you're wiser, et cetera, they go on with that. And, and, but that whole culture of respect, and then you talk about being ambassadors and representing whether whatever country around the world that was part of that coalition, um, you know, then, now, and in the future. But, uh, you know, you experience it, other people have experienced it, I experienced it that, you know, you're sitting, you got those quiet moments um, and, and you're talking with somebody from that country, let's say one of your interpreters, and, um, and and you sometimes get the impression or the feeling that they're kind of fitting you out and, and really trying to figure out if you're really the good person that you portray yourself as. And, yeah. and that, and that, and when they figure it out, when they get it, man, I can't, I'm sure you know this too, you can't. You can't really articulate just how much that comes around to help you, um, whether you're traveling around, moving in and out of the country, or you're doing your job. Because these people, when they realize you're a good person, uh, I mean, so many of them put, I thought, in, in hindsight, uh, mm -hmm. themselves in unnecessary positions of risk trying to help me and other people out because we were there being a good person trying to help them and, and the people in their community and their country. Um, yeah. And then you realize, you know, uh, all the all the you know uh, prejudices and biases aside, you know, a lot to most of these people are in these countries are probably pretty decent folk. They, like you said, they just want to get along and do their thing, but you know, but they also want to get rid of these bad elements. And so we're, so we do got to do it right. When when yeah. we when we pull the trigger, if you will, or or we you know interrogate somebody, or you know we throw them against the wall and drag them to wherever we're taking them, we got to make sure we got the right person, and and, and we got to make sure that we did it right, and, and 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 try to keep that footprint as small as we possibly can, and and mm -hmm. then and then let all that anger and rage dissipate because. Now it's over, we're done, and we're mingling with the population. we got to get along with them just like we would if we're back home. Right, right. Well, you know, I, I, uh, not only myself, but I, I, I can only speak for what I did in, in my AO. We, uh, I, I, de I designed our training way off of what the military wanted me to train because um, after I realized after a couple of weeks that their course was just – these guys weren't ready for it yet. I, I got permission from the battalion, who was an, it was an Army Ranger Fulberg Colonel, who was in charge of the mentoring for the entire Kandahar Theater. So uh, on one of our police headquarter meetings, like every other Sunday, we used to have a meeting we would go to, and he was there. And my, my lieutenant said, hey, bring this up to the to the colonel, because, you know, if this isn't going to work, you know, we got to figure out what, what will work. And, I, and he let me do my thing, keeping the other – the other people there, the other mentors, they, they, they stuck to the to their commander's unit assessment tool. I was able to go off and do uh, start start these guys from almost like a basic training, drill and ceremony, 
inspections, uniform inspection, then I went to their hygiene because they had none of huh. that. They had none of that training. So when I got that across, and the next thing you know, I call these guys into formation. Um, their commander yells attention and Dari or, or Farsi, uh, they come to attention, they snap, they look good, their uniforms are squared away, their weapons are squared away. They knew then that, uh, this is the way we got to go. And, and then we built on it from there. And hmm. then, you know, and I was very satisfied, you know, at the end of the, at the end of that first deployment, we had the highest efficiency rating of any AMP unit in the Kandahar theater. So, wow. Um, I just I just took principles that I was trained in and, and adapted it to to this to this program and it worked. I'm not saying it's for everybody. I'm not saying it'll work everywhere, but in this particular instance, these people had no training. They needed a, a baseline and then build on that. Not just go into something that they have no idea what you're doing. That's outstanding. So, you know, but that so w- when you talk about mentoring, it 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 can go to. Things like what we're taught, what you just mentioned, that what we consider the most basic of things that most of us, when we do think about it, we learned that when we were three, five, or seven. Exactly, exactly. The ANP, Afghan National, or the Afghan National Police, had an educational rating of about anywhere from kindergarten to third grade. Wow. You know, and in, in, in our standards. So think about that. Right. They're all carrying K-47. Hey, they know the country. They know the politics. They know uh, they they're street smart, very street smart. Right. And what we you know to their culture and yes, to they their are. character. And um, so you have to take and form that person, take them out of their element, if you will, and, and and immerse them in our element, but leave their culture alone because they're going to go back to it anyway. Right. Uh, and try to change them culturally, but try to change them in thinking there is a better way to get information from a shopkeeper than beat it out of them, you know, <laughs> approach them, shake their hand or not shake their hand, you know, salam alaikum, give them the hearts, the heart sign. You, you, get, you get a conversation going. Like if you eat anything, if anything bad happens, please call us, please report it. You know, give them your cell phone number. They all had cell phones over there. So that's not, a, that wasn't hard to, to do. And that stuff started to work on RAO. We started, in fact, it led to the, at, 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 at the end of our deployment on the seventh month, it led to a very large bomb making factory being being raided and successfully taken down. Wow. So I guess that was a culmination of all their training was used in that operation. So when we brought the suspects back, they were interrogated professionally. They were treated professionally because we talked about detainee treating. How you, you don't beat them, you don't you don't starve them, you give them water, you give them food. Next thing you know, they're giving you information. That's how this all started. Right. And it's and they saw a different way, and I, I can only hope that there some of it's still in place right now. I I can't tell you I've been out of country that long, but I, I hope it is. I hope it is. Yeah, me too. Well, you know, and and I do hear and occasionally read, but I hear more than I do read because you know there's you know, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole about the uh, media bias, but um, you know, but I, I do hear from other people that uh, what you just talked about that there is that lo- that lingering long lasting effect but it's something that we've got to constantly hearken on and and, and be there uh, not necessarily as war fighters but as advisors consultants mentors and 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 that support posture because um it, you know so because so we have a history as a nation of going in and and 
initially helping them with everything they need um, and then slow and then just pulling out uh, because it became, uh, you know, politically, you know, nobody wanted to do it anymore. That we, we lost right. the will is what they say. But we yeah. I think we've learned that we've got if we're going to go in there and either start it or help them start it. We've got to help them keep it going. Now, we've got to, and I, I would tell them when they ask why you guys, you know, I said, look, at some point, if if you folks really want this, if you, you've got to figure it out and keep it going on your own. We can Absolutely. help you. We can give you this. We can give you that. But we can only fight your fight for so long. Eventually, you're going to have to fight it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's a good point. And, and, and. You know, when when I was leaving uh, or, or to go home, you know, my my deployment ended at the same time my military unit deployment. So we all kind of left together. But the new unit came in like three weeks before they left, so we were able to bring kick bring them up to speed. And then when I came back, they were you know they kind of hit the ground running. But uh, and it was kind of you know and and then you have to come to now you got a new set of soldiers there. You had to shape their mindset because they were, they were over there for a specific reason only they were to kill bad guys you know and, and but that's not what that's that's not all the mission that's god right. forbid that's that's just a, a a small part of the mission you hope right. you know but we had a bigger mission to do but and then they got it you know they, they they took to it and and the whole thing talking about the endless wars and everything when you're dealing with a with with that type of a culture in the country like iraq or afghanistan or any, any of the middle eastern countries or you know north africa you know, they've been operating under this system for, like I said, 2,000 years. Basically, they haven't changed for 2,000 years. Right. So to, to think you're going to change a country's culture and mindset in even 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it's, it's a job. It's a tough job. So right. uh, it, it is time to start scaling down. But it also, if we just pull out, and I'm not going to go into the whole geopolitical thing, but if we just pull out, a lot, a, some of what we built is going to collapse, and then it's just going to start possibly that whole domino effect where it's just going to go back to the way it was. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and I, and I am by no means a proponent of pulling out. Uh, but, I, but by the same token, I'm not suggesting that we should maintain a, a constant war footing over there either. Um, I was, you know, just merely stating that based on my experiences, uh, you know, and, and discussions that, you know, I think just realistically, when you look at the hearts and minds and you look at stuff, I mean, it would be no different than if than if the USA were not a, a first world superpower. If we needed right. somebody to come in and help us fight our fight, like we did during the Revolutionary War, okay, yeah. <clears throat> that was great. We needed it, but at some point, we we don't want you here anymore as an official governing presence. You're welcome right. to come over as a citizen and visit, or even take up citizenship or residency. But to be a governing military presence, at some point, we don't want that anymore. Same thing over there. Yeah. Okay. Hey, can I can I take uh, can I take like a thirty second break? Yeah. Go ahead. Let me. Uh, I'm gonna. I'll pause the recording. Go ahead. Great. Thanks. I'll be right back. Okay. Okay. We're recording again. And again, I'll just edit all this stuff out. So, uh, Jeff. Uh, so, get back. Uh, what we were. Um, uh, discussing with the with your time over there be, before I forget about it, um, can is there are you able to articulate a typical operational what your typical workday was like um, while you were over there? Okay, 
Yes, uh, you know, you know, once we got all the, usually the night before, I would I would get a briefing by uh, one of the sergeants in the platoon. Hey, we're going out to checkpoint uh, three tomorrow morning. We're going to, you know, uh, depart sometime around, uh, you know, eleven hundred hours or zero eight hundred hours or whatever, uh, whatever. And then and then about a forty five minutes before. Uh, before the, the, the mission were to, were, were, were to commence, we'd reconvene, have another little briefing. All the comms would be loaded into the radios. Um, we're, we're, we're going to be working off of that day. And then, um, and then we'd, we'd set out and dismounted patrol. Normally with a dismounted patrol, uh, they would go to, you know, use a certain, certain area, a certain way to get there. Um, sometimes we would traverse orchards or, Pecan tree orchards or pomegranate orchards or, you know, other fields, uh, that were being tended by, and we'd stop and talk to the, stop to talk to the shepherds and the local farmers and stuff and try to get a rapport with them as well, the local population. So they're not, they wouldn't, they start to trust us instead of fear us. And, um, then we'd get to a typical checkpoint, uh, just a, just a, a, a a mud wall surrounding some more mud buildings, and that was pretty much the checkpoint. And uh, was usually on on a trail that was used by the local population, and so that that which was comprised of farmers, sheep herders, uh, Kuchi tribesmen, which were the kind of the nomadic tribesmen of Afghanistan, uh, and they were our biggest worry because they were big Taliban sympathizers, and they could blend in with those people very very quickly and easily. So huh. uh, we we would pay special attention to the Kuchis. Uh, maybe a new face. Uh, we would have uh, the hide system with us, so biometrics were taken on some people to see if they were in any of the databases of any of the seven-member units that were had access to that information to see if they were, you know, a, a known insurgent. Um, then it would be taken into custody immediately and then transported back for for uh, for uh, reporting purposes, and then off to Bagram. We'd never see them again. That was pretty much what would happen. So. Huh. Um, but then when we get to the point, uh, the, the, the ANP who were manning the, the towers, the, the, which were basically just big blobs of mud stacked on top of each other or, or sandbags, whatever they had to use, uh, they would, uh, they would collapse their security, come down to a certain area in the, in the compound. And then uh, our, uh, unit would go up and do overwatch uh, on us as well as the out, at our perimeter. And then I'd conduct my training exercise, and that could be anywhere thing from handcuffing techniques to patrol tactics to IED recognition and response to personal searches of vehicles or persons. Um, anything that, that they, as a police department in a conflict zone as such as Afghanistan, we would cover that topic of the day. Hmm. And on, on some days, uh, I threw this in as well. Uh, I would say, because they, they didn't like to train for the most part. They, it was just, a, a, to them, it was a waste of time and a pain in the neck until they, they got to know me. Uh, so on, on a couple of days, I uh, would go to a checkpoint and we just sit and talk. We would talk about our families. We talk about our homes. I didn't give up any addresses or nothing like that, of course, for OPSEC and PERSEC, but, uh, we'd get, they'd have, I'd give them enough to know that I had a, you know, I had a father or I had a, some sons, which they really respected that in their culture. So, I would talk about things that they would be interested in, and I'd listen to them through the through my uh, my language assistant, tell me about their backgrounds and everything, or where they were from. So it got we got a lot more personal with those people, and in the long run, it absolutely helped us 
uh, do what we did because um, and let, and until you build those bonds, you're just another foreign outsider trying to tell them what to do. And they had <laughs> been they'd been through that with the Russians. You know, some of these people that were A and P were former Mujahideen fighters. So I got to learn a little bit about their tactics and 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 the way they trained and, and fought. And I'll tell you, uh, you talk about um, talk about some some really tough fighters. I mean. And I fought with them. We were shoulder to shoulder a couple times fighting, and and uh, and, and thank God they were there. Right. They, they did a they did a great job. So it it all comes down to, again, it all comes down to personalities, putting your your differences aside, and uh, and being a good ambassador for your 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 country, and uh, that all that's a package deal. You you have to take over with you. You have to present it that way. At least in this mission that we were on. Um, and then the rest kind of falls into place. Hmm. You know, that much of what you're talking about, um, you know, hearkened on uh, interpersonal relations um, and, and respect, uh, which we've talked about before. But, man, I mean, I just can't let I mean, part of me can't let that go. It's just, you know, it's not like I'm some, you know, idealistic do gooder. But I mean, it just you learn after a number of years that, man, you just. You can't get anywhere for any length of time if you don't have that mutual respect for each other. No, it's 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 exactly right. I mean, it's it's the most basic uh, premise of, of of being a human. You know, if you can have that contact and then you can nurture that, uh, and relatively, you think nine months is a long period of time to, to be with a group of people, but it really isn't. It's it, it's 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 a moment in time. So right. you have yeah. you got a lot to accomplish. Uh, in this particular mission, it was a lot to accomplish in nine months. And, 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 you know, when a new, and I say a nine month unit now, an, another unit came in and replaced the unit I was with, and they were continuing on and on and on. And then when I left that mission, you know, another mentor was there to take over. So, right. you know, all I could to, to do was to spin up the new military unit, um, and also spin up the new mentor so they could kind of be hit the ground running. And then, and then, you know, you will now, uh, replace what we were doing, and we just we don't want to say we were better at it. We just wanted to be at least the same and try to be better at it. Because if they went, if they started this whole hard guy thing and posturing like we're the boss, and the, 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 those guys it just would it would have crumbled. So you know, um, you have to present yourself as somebody who is approachable um and 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 a, and a person of goodwill because they 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 suck that stuff right up and then and you could use it to your advantage so right well yeah uh well and that's something that uh, gets overlooked a lot um uh you know because there were people there before you and I got there doing similar or same things and then right. when we don't go back to that same place or job uh somebody else goes in to do what we were doing and you know and then you start to realize either at at some point usually it's in hindsight but uh mm -hmm. it's like wow well maybe that's one of the reasons they uh i had so much resistance at first <laughs> you know yes, right. and i would hear them say well so and so taught us and told us this and uh you know you had to you had to work your way through that but um mm -hmm. but i think one of the highest forms of flattery and and it sounds to me like you had a similar experience so so let me know if you did is when you hear from them when they find out that you're leaving that they want you to come back 
Scott, oh my you, God. are you coming back? Will you come back? You're not going to come back? Why? We want you right. to back. You know, when you get those things and when you get home on leave and you hear that they want you back still, it's like, wow. Uh, so you must have – so I'm just saying when you get – I think that's the highest form of flattery. That's when you start I, – I never thought about it at the time. It was later. It was like, you know, maybe I did have an impact. Maybe I did say yeah. and do something right. No, never, never doubt it, Scott. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, on one of my final days – uh, I'm at the headquarters uh, of our of our little cop, uh, the A&P unit that's that's there that lives with us, and uh, uh, they call me into a room. They come and get me. They call me into a room, and we're sitting there, and 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 they're small smiling. They knew I was going home for good, and uh, it was kind of an emotional. And and the the, the, uh, the one sergeant comes over to me, hands me a water bottle. And it was an extra large one. I, and I very rarely saw the big ones, but they had one that day for some reason. It was a big water bottle. I'm looking inside of it. There's something in there. It's filled with sand and stone, a little bit of stone and sand. It's a baby cobra snake huh. that they, they found a cobra nest, went and got a baby, and put it in a bottle. They wanted me to take it home as a, as a sign of remembrance and as a pet. Like, wow. like And I'm like, I, I'll never get this thing through fucking customs. <laughs> when are going to do this? You know, this ain't going to happen. So now I have to, now I have not to offend them. Right. And, and say, you know, I said, listen, this is not my rule, but we're not allowed to bring, and I'm throwing this through a language assistant, you know, so there, there, there's, I'm sure there's a couple words that are being tossed around there. I, I really can't bring this back to the United States because it's technically dangerous and blah, blah. So I got through that, but it took me like 15 minutes to articulate right. how they felt. I didn't want to hurt their feelings because this came from their heart. Right. I mean, you know, this was something that I, I, it blew me away, dude. It blew me away. Right. And, and, and I said, listen, keep this here as, as kind of like a, of me. Just think about me being here if you had your little snake with you. But I'm like, this thing's going to get bigger and probably bite somebody and kill them. <laughs> Like uh, all this shit's run through my head, and I'm like, but you know, but that's just, but you, you hit it on the head. I mean, uh, that was a, a, a turning point, knowing that I did something good there. Right. Yeah, and, and that and that is a that's a great feeling when you when you when you get that and you realize that. And um, what was going to say. So let me ask you real quick. Uh, I got to get this out here before as we're uh, coming up on wrap up time. But so what so. Your missions over there, did it differ? And if so, how did it differ from the so-called INL missions? Well, they, it, was an IN, it was an INL mission. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, it was an INL mission. It just was a, it was a new tactic of, of police training that they wanted to train to get people away from the forward operating bases of like an academy where you weren't having a lot of impact uh, to a more personal down to their level embedded with the military unit. So you're partnering with your military partners um, uh, to engage the Afghan national security forces one-on-one uh, okay. -on -one in their climate and in their, and in their environment. Right. Okay. Sure. Um, you know, and it seems to me, and I'm not exactly where they're at it now, but I, I have a feeling it's, from what I've been hearing, that it's that that's where we're at now for a lot of part is that we've gone from the and again no disparaging here, but we've gone from the big green go in there and kick ass mentality and blow everything up and kill everybody that moves to the more 
covert, subtle approach that a different type of specialized military unit might take. Um, I mean, you're ready, you're ready to do the deed if you have to, but that's not, but that you'd rather do it a different way. Sure. Sure. Well, listen, you know, in in hindsight, um, in hindsight, it's, it's a better way, I think, because, you know, you're, you're, you're lessening the chances of, of a large scale attack at a a Ford operating base. So you're, you know, the large scale attacks are, are that that's kind of, toned down a bit. And you're also getting into the nitty-gritty of the population because along with the with the officers that you're training, you know, you get to know the shopkeepers on the outside of the perimeter of the of the outpost and they see you every day when you're with the A and P and they get a relationship with you. You know, maybe you buy a a, 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 a bootleg, you know, D V D from them. You get a you get some uh, you, you get some some minerals or some black or wherever they have for sale, whatever, you, you patronize them. You, you, that's community policing, and that's what community policing is all about. You have huh. to, you know, community policing is so important. So the interstate works very well over here in the United States. We just adapted it to a conflict zone where you're just getting down to, to the shopkeeper's level, to the general, to the farmer's level, interact with them, get, gain their trust, and then they'll tell you things that you need to know to protect yourselves as well as to protect their families and the, and the surrounding community. Right. Wow. Um, so, so Jeff, uh, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. And, and while I'm thinking of it, um, well, let me ask you first. I almost got it out of <laughs> – I tend to put things <laughs> in the wrong order. But <laughs> uh, So you're, you're pretty much done contracting now. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. You know, I say never, Scott, but um, – uh, I think I mentioned this early on in our in our relationship. Uh, I came back this from the second tour. Uh, I promised to my son that I wasn't going to go back over. And uh, I just had an opportunity about four weeks ago to go back on a, on a mission for security, specifically in Kabul. And I'll tell you, it was tough to turn the page, my friend. I, I really thought about it. I really uh, did. But, I'll uh, bet. I'll bet. And, 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 as, as an, and as a side to all that, now all three of them in the Marine Corps. So huh. uh, it's like, oh, now, now I'm home and now you're leaving. You know, that's, that's, that's the way things happen. But, but uh, yeah, um, I never say never, but I think that the choice, chances of me going back on a mission are, are probably pretty slim. Let's put it that way. Okay. So, All right. But, I, yeah. but I, I can tell you this, also in the same breath, there's not a day that goes by. I don't think that. Right. <clears throat> right. Yeah, I think a lot of us are um uh have similar uh feelings toward the whole thing that you know, it's not that we wouldn't like to go back, it's not that uh, a lot of us couldn't still do it, but uh it's kind of like we rode that horse about as far as we can take it. And uh Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, know, look, I was 50, I was 53 when I went there initially. I'm 63 now. So, you know, you got to take that into you got to take that into 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 the, you know, I the last thing I want to do is endanger somebody's life because I can't react as well as right. I used to. Right. Uh, I still feel pretty good and I still react pretty good and and in my security business. But the bottom line is I'm not in a conflict zone either. You know, right. I'm not not uh, I'm not I'm not where I was 10 years ago. So you take it that I the last thing I want to do is get somebody hurt because I couldn't do the right thing at the right time. You know. So, right. But. So so how so with that said then. Uh, what what's different now? How has your life changed? Uh, what are you doing these days, and what are your plans for your future? 
Well, I uh, when I transitioned from contracting, I came back over, and I was still doing some work uh, with a uh, another con- another federal contractor, but for police officers over here doing active shooter and, and tactical entry training. And when that when that contract ran out, then uh, in 2013, I, I opened a private security company, and um, uh, I 14, 14 and 15, something. 2016, I, uh, one of the district attorneys that I used to work with here uh, approached me, and he said, listen, they need to come up and help me start a unit up here. I'm looking for a, a narcotics unit within the county. I want you to, you know, get it up and running, and uh, can you can you separate yourself from your business for about a year and a half or so? And I, and I, and I did. Uh, so I went out of retirement for a little bit, and I got his unit running up, uh, up and running for them, and, and they're well on their way to being successful. So hmm. I really came back to it in 2017 and 18 really 18 and it's been going pretty well. I mean, I have some private clients that I'm doing protective services for. And, um, uh, and I, I have, I have the, the company broke up into two different divisions, protective services, as well as uh, training and education. So I'll do active shooter training for schools or volunteers who do church, church security. I'll, I'll, I'll mentor those folks as well. So it's, it's been a, it's been a good run and hmm. you know, COVID, COVID-19 has flattened a lot of things out, but, you know, we're, we're on the rebound. I see it's rebounding a little bit. And, um, you know, who knows? I mean, uh, I might reverse at some point. Um, I'll be thinking about maybe trying uh, my hand, like, maybe doing a little French thing with them if they're, if they're, uh, if we can make it a good fit. Uh, so it's, it's, I do have a hospitality background back on my youth. My parents had a restaurant and a hotel, so I have a, I have a background in that as well. So I, you know, no, I, I love the private security work and um, I want to grow the company. Um, uh, right now it's tough with COVID and everything, but I think we're going to come out of this okay. Uh, we're going to learn a lot of lessons, uh, but I think we're, also, we're going to come out of it okay. And then we'll just have to see what the future brings. But uh, that's, where I'm, that's where I stand right now, buddy. Okay. So what, uh, for the folks that are listening, what is the name of your private security company and where can they find it online? Right. Uh, the, the company's called Personal Security Solutions, LLC, and we're on Facebook and we're on LinkedIn, I, as, as I am myself personally. And um, uh, the website currently is www.personalsecuritysolutions.net. However, uh, the marketing group that I'm working with on my business expansion, we're changing the logo, we're changing the website. So soon it's going to be, uh, I don't know, I think it's about four to six weeks out, but I think the new website's going to be getoffthe-x.com. So it'll be like getoffthex.com. I had to put a little hyphen in there because the getoffthex.com was already taken. So, ah. um, so get get off the get off the dash x.com, and we all know what get off the x means. So. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's that's what I'm that's what we're pushing for right now with that. So. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, um, before we wrap this up, and I want to say, uh, Jeff, uh, again, I, I totally, absolutely appreciate the time you've spent uh, sharing your experiences and time uh, w- with, the, with the listening audience. Uh, and, and hang in there when we're done with this. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more when we're done. Sure. Okay. And and I hope you'll be willing to do this again. I you know at another point in the future we can do another one. 
I would, I would, I would, it would be an honor for me, Scott. I really enjoy thinking about it. And, you know, I, 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 I think about it every day. I relive it through my mind and probably out of 63 years, I would say two of the best years of my life. Wow. So. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can attest to that. So, uh, not, I mean, for, for, from my personal experiences, uh, so, uh, before, before we wrap this up, I just want to, uh, you know, like I said, there's been a lot of good feedback and a lot of, uh, a lot of good things going, starting to happen now. Uh, so I want to put a big shout out there for uh, William Beaver of Danger Zone Jobs for uh, helping put the word out there and, and advertise this and uh, telling people about it. Uh, and also, apparently, somehow, I don't know how or why, but somebody mentioned that they saw it Shooter Jobs. And I'm going, Shooter Jobs? I, didn't, I had nothing to do with it. I don't know how that got on there, but okay. Um, hey, I, I, found, I found you in Danger I mean, I still, I still still look at the site because that's what we do. We just look and, you know, research. And I, so I found you, Scott, on Danger Zone Jobs. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so again, uh, so I, I want to thank William Beaver for that. Um, I, I think Danger Zone Jobs, I, I think back in the day, I remember them being located somewhere in the Middle East, uh, but apparently they're in Michigan or maybe they got multiple presences now, but they got a huge subscriber base out there. Um, so with that said, uh, folks, uh, thank you very much for tuning into this episode. I uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Remember to be careful what you wish for, stay frosty, and until next time, keep it real.